Conspiracy theories, government deception, and alternative facts. This is the subject of an Epic's original docuseries about Watergate. This is Slow Burn, based on the award-winning podcast. Host Leon Nafalk explores the conspiracies, deceptions, and stranger-than-fiction people that set the White House on fire. Watch Slow Burn every Sunday night at 10, 9 central, only on Epics. The Democrat Party, the Republicans, is the party of high taxes. To get rid of Donald Trump, the worst president we have ever had. Hey, Nerdcasters. I'm your host, Scott Bland. We're living in a split-screen world right now. And that was never clearer than on Wednesday night, when we were sitting in the newsroom with one TV on the Democratic presidential debate in Nevada and another TV on President Donald Trump's Arizona rally, happening at the very same time. Open borders, late-term abortion. President who rose to power by cynically exploiting late the frustration of This is going to be the reality we live in for the next several months. 2020 isn't going anywhere. Democrats are going to be doing their thing. Trump is definitely going to be doing his thing. And so we are talking to Politico White House reporter Gabby Orr on this episode about the Trump campaign strategy behind this, uh, what she calls the art of the troll, and also how the Trump administration is paying particularly close attention to the 2020 Senate map after impeachment. But first... We've got another raucous caucus coming up. Nevada, Democrats are voting on Saturday there. They've actually been doing some early voting through the week, but they're going to finish things up on Saturday. And with me to break it all down is Politico's Zach Montalaro, author of the Morning Score newsletter. Hi, Scott. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here, Zach. Oh, you know it. Anytime. Do I? (laughs) All right. So let's start with some expectation setting that we recently got from Tom Perez, the chairman of the Democratic National Committee who said that we should all brace ourselves for the possibility of not getting results from the Nevada caucuses on Saturday when they're happening. Now, this is the first caucus since Iowa. We all know what happened in Iowa. There's the primary in New Hampshire, but we're back back to the caucus system for now. And there appear to be some concerns about Iowa 2.0 coming to pass. Right. So after the debacle, disaster, whatever word you want to use for Iowa, it was not good. Every, currently all, in a recount. Currently still. in a recount. It's, it will not be over for at least a little bit longer. Um, what, after that all went down, it, all odds turned to Nevada to make sure they don't do the same thing. And this is probably a little bit of expectation setting to try to you know, play it out a little bit, to try to lower expectations that, you know, hey, it could come a couple hours later, it could come a couple days later, so everyone's not losing their minds like they were about Iowa the night of. And honestly, that's the that's the real problem yeah. of it, right? Like mm-hmm. the fact that the results – well, there there were some precincts where the results were just calculated or recorded improperly. Right. And that that's a big problem. But that's the bad. fact that the results were not available instantaneously is not in and of itself – a problem unless it's become this broadcast event where people are expecting it to be there and then journalists are getting tired and hungry. And Yeah, you know, how much this election swings on the irritability of hungry journalists is amazing. <laughs> but, that, I mean, that was part of the problem with Iowa is that they – the party said expect results, you know, fairly quickly. And it was never – you said we could be in for a long night, certainly, but we were never supposed to be in for a long – what is this, two and a half weeks at this point – so in, in Nevada, they're trying to not set that expectation. It's a little bit different. You know, caucuses there start early in the day, thankfully. I think it's noon, you know, local time. So 
God willing, the results could be wrapped up fairly early in the evening if everything goes all right. But this this expectation setting by uh, Chairman Perez is trying to walk that back so that if results don't happen instantaneously, people don't immediately freak out. You know, part of it too is that there's a massive, massive amount of people who voted early in Nevada for the first time. It's the first time they offered early voting and it's just a huge amount of people doing so. So calculating that and figuring that out could add some Right. It's kind of working that into mm-hmm. the caucus process because everyone who voted early basically had to write on a sheet of paper, first choice, second right. choice, th- and then they're going to do all the allocation right. and the alignments with those early votes. Are, are people basically going to be carrying like stacks of paper around the actual precinct sites to do this calculation and fit people in with the groups who voted early? Well, they have they have this all on paper, but you know they also have – paper is the backup form. They, they're, part of this has been digitized, you know, not – as they like to stress, it was not an app. It's a Google form. You know, pick pick your poison. I guess at this point, but it, part you know part of it is going to be just working that in. You know, caucuses is normally something that people can't early vote in. The whole point of a caucus is that people are in the same room at the time. And they get to jabber at each other and try to move people around. <laughs> the DNC earlier in the cycle wanted to make caucuses a little bit more available because caucuses are inherently. Uh, less democratic, so sh- so we shall say, than a pre than a uh, primary. Small D democratic. Small D democratic, and then a primary because because pe- you have to be there at a certain time. So this was trying to open it up, but then working those results back in makes it more difficult. You know, they're on high alert. Uh, the New York Times reported earlier this week that basically anyone related to tech is kind of swarming to Nevada to make sure it doesn't go crazy. Google is aware that if anything goes wrong, even though they have nothing really to do with this. That it would reflect poorly on them. So the Times reported that Google will have people there. You know, the state party, as we reported, put a call out for volunteers, just tech-minded volunteers to be able to do troubleshoot. The documents the state party put out, they publicly put out the training documents, went down to something as small as how do you turn on an iPad. So like they're really trying to make sure it's a foolproof system, as much of a foolproof system as it can be. You know, I bet some people will get tripped up by the iPad turning on part. But they're really trying to walk through every step of the process to make sure there's not really that many mistakes. The fact that there are so many people involved, if they do start having to report by hand, by phone, on the backup system, the more people you have, the faster that goes too, right? You're not going to potentially have people on hold for hours. Um, So assuming lessons were learned and put into practice and maybe Perez is doing a little expectation setting and we actually do get some results on Saturday, what are you expecting there? Can you break down a little bit of the the race for Nevada for us? Yeah, so – Partially is I'm I'm a little not sure what to expect just because of that early voting. Uh, the number of people who early voted was something – I think it was something like 75,000 people. That's about mm, a little less than 10,000 less than the total number of people who caucused in 2016. So oh, it, wow. is, it is a lot of people. So that kind of changes the electorate. It changes how a caucus operates if that many people are voting early. That being said, uh, my colleague – our colleague David Siders reported earlier this week that other campaigns are privately conceding that Bernie Sanders looks to be the frontrunner. Uh, they don't expect him to run away with it. They don't even expect him to really get a third of the vote, which considering how big the field is would be a lot. But other campaigns think that Bernie Sanders is up there. Um, com- some polling this week of Latino uh, voters in the state, which is an incredibly important uh, coalition within the state, showed kind of Sanders and Joe Biden running you know, one and two. And Biden's campaign says they think they can finish second. So that's what, that's what I think is the most important thing to watch is you know, Joe Biden's argument so far has been you know, New Hampshire, Iowa, not representative of the Democratic Party. Not representative of my support. It's all white people. Let's see how he does now in a state that's not all white people, basically. All right. So we've got uh, Sanders as the front runner, both in the sparse public polling and and in what the campaigns are thinking. We've got Biden potentially making a a strong showing here. We'll we'll see if that all turns out. What about the standout debate performer from Wednesday night, Elizabeth Warren, who did some gangbusters fundraising stuff? Uh, We saw 
in New Hampshire that Amy Klobuchar rose into a strong third place finish there on the back of a big uh, debate performance. You know, could we see the same from Warren in Nevada? Yeah, we shall see. You know, Warren's campaign has always been organize, organize, organize. So that inherently lends itself to caucuses. You know, she finished in third in Iowa, a bit a distant third, but a third nevertheless. So let's see how she does here. I wonder how much that early voting will affect it, that all those early mm. voting ended before the debate started. So all these people cast their ballots early, uh, did not get to see Elizabeth Warren kind of beat up Mike Bloomberg for, you know, an hour and a half or whatever it was earlier this week. So that all happened before, uh, you know, she, she has to be able to get the voters who are showing up day of and maybe she can flip some of them. But that could be a sizable chunk of people who already cast their ballot, already locked in well before, uh, sh- you know, she had her chance on stage. Mm. And let's bring in let's bring in a few more candidates mm-hmm. here. Klobuchar and Buttigieg kind of bounced into Nevada off these strong performances in New Hampshire and Iowa, too, as far as Buttigieg mm-hmm. uh, is concerned. Um, but whereas Biden has been looking forward to getting out of those first two states and into some of the states with more Latino voters, more black voters, um, that that has been potentially a barrier for Klobuchar and Buttigieg, who's, uh, who, who have not really shown a ton of support among uh, voters of color in the polling so far in this primary. Yeah, it's been a major barrier for both of them. Um, you know, they, they haven't had the opportunity to try to reach out to voters of color. And our colleague Elena Schneider reported this earlier this week that this is the, the first massive road bump that they're going to face is this, you know, it's a diverse electorate now. It's not just white voters casting their ballot. It's Latino voters. It's, uh, you know, more so in South Carolina, but also there's a significant you know, African-American population in Nevada as well. How do they reach Nevada. out? Nevada. Nevada. I will get this wrong. Please, <laughs> John Ralston, don't yell at me. How do they win over these voters, right? And is there, frankly, enough time for them to do so is the real question that even after these two strong performances, what are they doing to try to bring these voters into their fold? And then there's Tom Steyer. Then there's Tom Steyer. Uh, Tom Steyer was not on the debate stage earlier this week, much to the chagrin of his campaign. They were very much not happy so about So much it. chagrin. A lot of it. But – by all accounts, he could pick up a delegate in the state. We don't really quite know from the public polling. His polling that he released, internal polls, so take it with a ocean's worth of salt. Nobody re- releases bad internal polls about themselves. But his internal polling said, hey, we could crack 18 percent. That would win him a delegate. Um, either way, public polling, the few public polling we've had in Nevada and in South Carolina has shown Tom Steyer performing particularly well. Um, these are states that he – he's invested a lot of money in every state. Don't get me wrong, Iowa, New Hampshire. But, unlike, but it seems to have paid off more. Yeah, because Iowa and New Hampshire, he was contested. Everyone invested a lot of money in Iowa and New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. That's not the case for Nevada and South Carolina. He was basically by himself on the airwaves. He has a massive field staff. He, you know, he's hired a lot of locals. So this is what he's banking on is doing well here. It could really change the dynamic too. It could be siphoning off votes from a whole bunch of different people if he shows up and cracks 10, 11 percent, something he wasn't doing in Iowa and New Hampshire where he was you know, barely in mid-single digits at best. Well, and that kind of brings us to the the last question I wanted to ask you, Zach, as you mentioned the, the possibility that Steyer could snag delegates in Nevada and South Carolina, who knows where else going forward. Right. Um, at the very end of Wednesday night's debate, uh, NBC's Chuck Todd asked every candidate uh, to kind of game out the possibility of going into the convention uh, with someone with the front runner, whoever it is, having a plurality of delegates, but not the majority they need to get the nomination. We are not. We are less than two weeks away from a national primary. And I want to ask all of you this simple question. There's a very good chance none of you are going to have enough delegates to the Democratic National Convention to clinch this nomination. Okay? If that happens, I want all of your opinions on this. Should the person with the most delegates at the end of this primary season be the nominee, even if they are short of a majority? 
My answer to that is wait and see until at least Super Tuesday. Once we get through the first four early states, still not that many delegates awarded, all things considered. When we hit Super Tuesday, March 3rd, by the end of Super Tuesday, by the time all the votes are tallied, which granted could take quite some time considering California is one of those states, 40% of delegates will be awarded. So we will really have a better answer and a better view on that question come Super Tuesday, come March 3rd. And the big thing about these states is that it's proportional allocation. You know, if you win 30%, like for a Republican, you know, election, some Republican states, it's winner take all. 30% wins you the whole hall of delegates. Not the case in 2020 with Democrats in these states. If you win 25% statewide, you get proportional amount of it. You know, you have to crack a certain threshold. You have to hit 15% of support to get delegates at all. So somebody getting 7% is going to come away with nothing. But that also means that candidates can't just eke out a victory, can't beat someone by two or three points and run away with a haul. This is kind of what we saw, you know, in these early states that, uh, you know, no matter who won Iowa or New Hampshire, Sanders and Buttigieg walked away with just about the same amount of delegates. I think Buttigieg right now, before the recount is completed, has two more national delegates because they had roughly the same vote count. And that will really, you know, supersize itself on Super Tuesday that if in California, three candidates break that threshold, that's dividing that big pot among three people. So it does it prevents anybody who gets first place from just kind of taking off. And then also you've got the fact that there are delegates that come from the congressional districts, mm-hmm. right? And so you could have different people finishing above 15% in 20 congressional districts than are finishing above 15% statewide. And so you that's just the way right. the delegate division could contribute to this sort of circumstance that, that was discussed at the debate. Doesn't mean it's going to happen. I feel like the talk of a contested convention always runs hot at some point in every single presidential primary ever. But, you know, you can kind of see the contours of how we could end up walking down that path. Zach, thanks for breaking it down. Thanks for having me, Scott. Nerdcast will be right back after this short break. Get ready to experience a story you probably haven't heard. A story about what it was like to live through the greatest political scandal of the 20th century. The bizarre and twisted story behind Watergate. Coming to Epics is the new original docuseries, Slow Burn. Based on the award-winning podcast, host Leon Nafok explores the conspiracy theories, government deception, and stranger-than-fiction characters that set Nixon's White House on fire. Watch Slow Burn every Sunday night at 10, 9 central, only on Epics. All right. As we told you at the top, it's a split screen world. We're going to go to the other side of that screen now. We talked about Democrats in the first half, and we're going to talk about President Donald Trump and what his campaign is up to these days in the second half. And to do it, we have Politico White House reporter Gabby Orr. Thanks for having me. Covering the Trump campaign, Gabby, you've written that they're feeling particularly good about the moment they're in right now. The Trump campaign has a strategy right now that they call the art of the troll. And what they're basically doing is dropping (laughs) – I know (laughs) – um, dropping into states where you have a caucus or a primary coming up, sometimes on the eve of that – uh, that contest and doing what they can to basically draw as much attention away from the Democratic primary as possible to force um, the media to be talking about what Trump is saying at his rallies uh, to, you know, suck all of the energy out of uh, the Democratic base as they look to what's happening on the debate stage or 
decide who they're going to vote for in their their state's contest. And they're do, they've done this in Iowa. They did it in New Hampshire. They did it in Nevada this week. Um, and we can expect that they will continue to do it um, as as this primary contest unfolds. And meanwhile, the really interesting thing about this schedule to me is in between this uh, this troll tour of the the Democratic <laughs> primaries and caucuses. Uh, Trump is dropping in on a bunch of 2020 battleground Republican senators. Absolutely. He's uh, in Colorado, North Carolina, Nevada, and Arizona this week. And um, out of that bunch, Arizona and Colorado are two states to really keep an eye on. Um, The president is basically going right into the heart of the Senate battleground map. Um, He's campaigning alongside Cory Gardner in Colorado. He's campaigning with Martha McSally in Arizona. These are two of the most vulnerable Republican senators up for reelection in 2020. And they have essentially concluded that it's best for them to sort of attach themselves to the president as closely as possible. So they were each, uh, McSally was at his Arizona campaign rally. I I anticipate that uh, Cory Gardner will be at the Colorado rally as well. And uh, the president is doing what he can to boost both of them. Uh, He is also looking to reward them. These are two senators who voted to acquit him in his Senate impeachment trial. And uh, McSally in particular was a very vocal defender of the president over the course of that impeachment trial. And so I do think uh, the president and his his 2020 campaign recognize that they should be doing what they can to boost the Senate majority, um, or at least to try and maintain it. And that's part of the strategy in dropping into these purple states. And it's interesting because when, when you think about what a senator or, or any candidate for Senate in one of these purple states want to do, they basically, they want to try and be a purple person, mm-hmm. right? Trump is not that. But... Republican senators have essentially come to the conclusion that you can't kind of straddle the line when it comes to the president and you you have to pick a side and they're choosing the Trump side and reaping the benefits of it at, at these rallies and then, you know, fundraisers and all sorts of other ways. I think one of the most interesting phenomenons that we've seen under the course of Trump's presidency is the fact that there are no longer, uh, you know, quote unquote, moderate Republican senators. They have all attached themselves to Donald Trump in one way or another. Um primarily because of the way that Trump has retaliated against those who don't attach themselves to him, who don't embrace him warmly, who don't support his agenda, um, vote to confirm his appointees. Uh, and, And I think that you know, McSally and, and Gardner are both making a strategic decision here and one that is really difficult to anticipate how it will play out because, of course, we have seen uh, Republicans who have very closely aligned themselves with Trump and with his administration um, not perform well in, in their own electoral contests. Uh, Matt Bevan, the Kentucky governor, being one of the most recent examples that Mar- comes Martha to McSally mind. Martha McSally was a recent Martha example Mc- in 2018, right? Exactly. And, and Dean Heller uh, in the 2018 Senate race as well. Um, yeah, of course, you know, uh, Heller losing in Nevada, Joe Heck, the Republican in, in, who was running for Senate in 2016 in Nevada, uh, also lost after breaking with Trump during that campaign. McSally, on the flip side, kind of hugged Trump very close when, when she was running in, in 2018, and it, it just didn't, didn't really work out. Uh, she was kind of running against the archetypal pur- purple candidate in, in Kirsten Cinema. And uh, McSally's got a very similar race on her hands in 2020 in a lot of ways. She does. After being appointed to the seat. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, McSally is, I would probably say, is the most vulnerable Republican senator, um, somebody who has sort of straddled the line on a number of issues, including immigration, and um, is is really 
running a careful campaign right now, um, but one that has put no distance between her and the president. And and just to kind of add to um, the point that we were just talking about, about Republican senators sort of linking themselves in arms with Trump, um, just to underscore that you know, the only alternative that we've seen in the Trump era is if you're not willing to do that, you're forced to retire. You know, Bob Corker, uh, Jeff Flake in Arizona. uh, Those are two great examples of Republican senators who did have long careers ahead of them, but just couldn't stomach the idea of, uh, you know, linking arms with this administration. and, And thus they were forced out of the Senate. The Corker example is really vivid to me. Flake, there's always fighting within the Arizona Republican Party about something or another. But Corker was a, a senator in extremely good standing in Tennessee, and then he ended up on the wrong side of the president. His numbers tank, and all of a sudden, he's retiring. Mm-hmm. And th- I'm, I'm sure that made a big impression on the, the folks who were colleagues with him for 6, 12, 18 years. <laughs> I think a lot of Republicans look at that moment and think, you know, these are my two options. It's a binary choice now. Either you embrace Trump or you remove yourself from Republican politics. I guess the the in terms of good news for Republicans, probably the median state on the Senate map, the one that Democrats would need to flip to take over the majority, is one where he he would be favored in in twenty twenty North Carolina. Yeah, absolutely, and. You know, part of the state strategy that the Trump campaign is running is they're looking at Colorado, North Carolina, Arizona, the three states that he'll be in over the course of this week, um, and and basically arguing that they're actually in play in 2020. And there are a lot of skeptics of that, myself included. But I do think that um, there is some validity to the fact that they think that they can flip those and put them in the president's column and, and thus help Republican senators who are running in those states as they do it. Um, Colorado, uh, just being one example, you know, I was talking to Tim Murdaugh, the communications director of the Trump campaign earlier this week, and he was saying that Colorado was a state that uh, Mitt Romney lost by uh, five points in 2012, that John McCain lost by eight points in, in 2008, uh, and that Trump lost by four points in 2016. And so they believe that that shows a trend toward the Republican Party, not away from it. Hmm. Interesting point. It should be a it should be an interesting state to watch. All those Western campaigns should be a lot of fun to watch. You got presidential battleground. You've got Senate battleground. Everything stacked up on top of each other. Got some House races there too. <laughs> yeah. Gabby, thanks for taking the time to talk about it. Thanks so much. All right, that's our show. Tune back in this weekend for a Nevada Caucus Roundup episode. Provided, of course, that we get those results we so desperately want to see. Our producer is Annie Reese. Our senior producer is Jenny Ament. And our executive producer is Irene Noguchi. Our illustrator is Bill Cookman. We had help on this episode from Adrian Hurst. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, do us a favor and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. Thanks for tuning in. We'll talk again soon.